Hello, and welcome back to the HSPAN podcast, your go-to podcast for longevity policy discussions. I'm your host, Dylan Livingston. Today, we will be joined by Ashley Zender, co-founder and CEO of Fauna Bio. In this episode, I wanted to learn about Ashley's background in veterinary medicine and the intersection between animal biology and human health. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Ashley Zender. Right. Welcome back to another installation of the HSPAN podcast. Our guest today is Ashley Zender, the founder and CEO of uh, Fauna Bio. Ashley, can you say hi to our audience? Hey, Dylan. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast today. Of course, of course. Thank you for taking the time out of your uh, schedule to join us. So the first thing I like to do in these podcasts is to ask our guests about their background, their personal lives, but what really brought them into this longevity field. So Ashley, if you could just give our audience a little background on you. Yeah, of course. Happy to do that. I have a a slightly non-traditional background, perhaps, uh, compared to maybe some of the folks that you've talked to on this podcast. Uh, So I started out my career in veterinary medicine. So before going to Stanford for a cancer biology PhD, I was a veterinarian, technically still am a veterinarian, but really working more on the clinical side, working with exotic animals. So working with everything for scales and feathers at UC Davis, doing a residency in exotic animal medicine. And I became really interested during that residency about why certain animals seem to get certain kinds of diseases at a very high rate of prevalence. So certain species got a lot of cancer, for example, ferrets and hamsters and rabbits got a lot of cancer and other ones really didn't seem to. We hardly ever saw chinchillas with cancer, for example. And some of these species also, uh, just for relevance for this podcast, right, some of those are also very long-lived species, right? So chinchillas also can live to be close to 20 years. They're a little bit underappreciated compared to the naked mole rat, but they're also a very long-lived rodent. They also seem to very rarely get cancer. So I was really interested in how evolution has shaped some of these species to really use the same genes that you and I have, but in very different ways. And I had this kind of sneaking suspicion that a lot of the molecular mechanisms underlying that were very similar, but a lot of veterinarians, myself included at the time, had very little training in molecular biology or really bench science or genomics for sure. We were trained in clinical medicine. So I had the opportunity to go to Stanford under a grant program that was specifically aimed for veterinarians who wanted to do PhDs. And so I applied for that program and was able to go to Stanford for my PhD, which I think was really eye-opening. And then I worked with world-class researchers in cancer medicine and biology who had spent their whole careers thinking about human disease and really how to model human disease, mostly in mice and rats, and had not thought really at all about how those same genes and pathways function in many hundreds of other species. And so I came with this very new perspective to thinking about how to model disease and realized that there was actually a really big disconnect um, between the work that was going on in sort of human-focused biomedical research and the diseases that we saw in, in species all over the world. So my interest really came from just being this sort of outsider, taking outside approach, looking in at where biomedicine was focused and seeing that there was potentially a better way to look for genes and pathways that could really have an oversized impact on human health, but counterintuitively not by looking at human genetics per se, but by looking at those same genes in other species. That's fascinating. 
One, because I think everybody, you know, out there, whether you're focused or, you know, aware of longevity or not, knows that, you know, tortoises live a lot longer than, you know, most other animals and dogs are age about seven years, seven times faster, right? Seven years for one for humans. So the differences in life expectancy and health between animals is is, is very obvious. to, to Striking. To yeah. Yeah. And so this kind of approach, like there, there are a few, you know, there's, there's loyal that's doing dogs and there's the dog aging project that's doing rapamycin on dogs. And there's, you know, a bunch of these other kind of biotechs focused on animals, but you guys are focused on exotic animals and things that are not in the household as much, right. Are not like visible, but are longer lived and maybe a little more, it's the right word, more of a fountain of information of how to live longer. So that's how it seems to me because you know, there's only so much we can learn from some of these, you know, companion animals or, you know, mice, right? But so can you kind of tell us, like, what are the insights you get at Fauna from these exotic animals? Like, what are the sort of insights you're looking for? What are the conclusions that you've drawn? How does that translate into drug discovery? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think where we at Fauna are very differentiated from how folks are looking at some of the companion animal models, which I also think is a very fascinating way to, to do drug mm-hmm. discovery as well. We look at animals that through their evolution, natural evolutionary process, have evolved ways to resist and in some cases reverse disease. So oftentimes these are animals that over 100 million years of evolution have evolved to resist some of the most extreme environments on our planet. So we, our CSO, Dr. Katie Grayback, has a background and expertise in hibernation biology there is a wealth of information about how hibernators are able to resist and in some cases reverse disease through their natural hibernation cycle. These are animals that can take their body temperature down to just above freezing. In the case of Arctic ground squirrels can actually take their core body temperature below freezing, which is yet yet another degree of, of insanity. But then they can only do that for a couple of weeks at a time before they have to rapidly rewarm back up to normal body temperature. And that rapid rewarming cycle is damaging to every tissue in their body, their brain, their heart, their kidneys, their liver all take a hit. And they have to do this every couple of weeks. So the 20 to 25 times over the hibernation cycle, they have to survive this damaging episode that is physiologically not dissimilar to what happens during a human heart attack or a stroke. So you can imagine, you know, how many humans could survive 20 heart attacks, you know, in a single year, right? Not too many of us could do that. But these animals do every year and and come out with normal looking organs at the end. And so what fauna looks at specifically are species and not just hibernators, we're starting to work with other species as well, that are able to resist damage, mostly because they've evolved, again, to survive extreme environments or extreme conditions. What's interesting about hibernation specifically is that this is an evolutionary trait that exists across almost every group of mammals, including primates. There are lemurs in Madagascar that hibernate very similarly to ground squirrels. Uh, And so we can use this really robust view of genomics and genes that are conserved across many hundreds of mammals and look for traits that are just core mammalian traits, right? If you look at the genomics, um, it suggests that the very, very early mammals had the ability to alter their metabolic rate and potentially were hibernators. And so, again, it's a way for us to look sort of back through the years of evolution and look at uh, core traits that are uh, core to all mammals. And so that's a little bit of, the, of why we we look at things a little bit differently is that we're not just trying to model what looks like a human disease, but kind of model it faster, which is a lot of what you can do with some of the companion companion dog models, but actually look at the reverse. Where do you see animals that naturally reverse those disease tendencies? And those are the species that we tend to focus on at Fauna. So 
hibernation. So, so, so let me get this straight. So, so these animals go through hibernation, right? And then they, their body temperature cools, rapidly rewarms, and that's equivalent to like a heart attack. Roughly. Yeah. And so what aspect in in terms of just hibernation, what aspect of that are you looking to sort of, I mean, I would imagine you're not trying to replicate the 20 to 25 heart attacks. Are you looking to like, you know, create a drug that mimics hibernation in the metabolic sense or like what, what is like specifically for hibernation, hibernation, what's the angle for? Yeah. So yeah, exactly. So what we look at are the genes and pathways that turn on when these animals are repairing the damage that happens during the natural hibernation cycle. So through that lens, we can look at genes that turn on when we know the heart is repairing itself from that damage that happens every couple of weeks. We then overlap that with genes and pathways that we find in human disease. So we could directly overlap that with genes, say, from human heart failure, for example. And where humans have gone on to form scar tissue in their hearts, these animals have healed those hearts with normally functioning heart tissue. So how we look for this opposite regulation genes that are say going up when we know they're repairing damage from hibernation essentially but are going down and say humans with heart failure so we know we're looking at the same genes and pathways but they're being regulated in different ways and then what we can do is we can start to mimic that with small molecules so we can map these genetic signatures to a library of small molecules that we have on our platform and say you know what this drug modulates the set of genes in very similar way to what we see in this repairing tissue in say the ground squirrel for example let's try that in human tissue so then we'll model the human disease condition with human cells in the lab our lab is in Emeryville California and so we'll do all of the modeling there in human heart cells or human fibroblasts or human intestinal cells and in another program that we're working with and so we test we manipulate genes directly but then we also go directly to small molecules and say can we mimic the same protective feature of the ground squirrels and so by doing that just for example, our lead program right now is a small molecule that came out of that library that I mentioned earlier that we found by looking at signatures of low oxygen or hypoxia in the ground squirrel and this resistance to this you know, ischemia or perfusion type injury that we see. And so that small molecule was able to replicate that in human heart cells in a dish. And also when we ejected it into the hearts of rats that we had performed a surgical or coronary occlusion, we tied off a coronary artery if we injected that area of the heart with this foam molecule, we were able to protect them from having the same kind of scar tissue that they would normally have had. So now we're looking at that small molecule as a really novel mechanism for pulmonary disease because uh, it also has a key role in the response to low oxygen or hypoxia. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. It's pretty wow. cool. Yeah. It's pretty freaking cool. So you, you kind of answered a little bit of my next question, but if you can you kind of go into Fauna's whole platform, like, you know, what, what indications are you targeting? You know, how many pipelines do you have? What's kind of next? You know, we can go into the specifics about, you know, the business and all that, the timeline and growth if you want, but specifically first, can you kind of go over what the scientific platform is uh, in as much detail as you're comfortable with? Yeah, no, that's fine. So, you know, scientifically what we do at Fauna is we're combining a few key large data sets. One of them is this RNA-seq expression data that we have from the biobank of samples that we in-licensed when we started Fauna um, from Katie's work. We now have added to that several other species. Um, we work with an investigator at UNLV who works with um, a species called a Tenrec, which is another hibernator, but very different than the ground squirrel. And we're starting to do work with a consortium of labs at the University of Florida that work with spiny mice, which are not hibernators, but they also can repair damage to many organs of the body without scarring. So they can repair their brain, spinal cord, kidney um, without uh, creating scar tissue. 
So we have uh, spiny mice brain and skin samples in the lab right now. We also have a collaborative agreement with the University of Wisconsin in Oshkosh, um, which is where the only research colony of 13 line ground squirrels is in the world. So we can do work with the squirrel colony there. And we can also bring in additional animal models into that facility as we need to. So we generate really unique um, data sets that really nobody else in the world has access to. But then on top of that, we integrate that with um, a lot of human disease genetics. So the full UK Biobank data set, external data sets um, from humans in different disease states. We purposely curate um, hundreds of different studies from other model and non-model organisms and other human data sets. All that goes together in a purpose-built knowledge graph to link all of this and help our target prediction. So over time, right, every individual data set adds to that. And then the value over time becomes how does the new data we're generating from any new species compare to this really treasure trove of data sets that we've already put together. So we, we first start with really the gene expression data. We link that to gene uh, conservation. So how highly conserved are these genes across many different mammals, including humans uh, specifically? So we really only focus at fauna on genes and genetic pathways that are highly conserved between those species and humans. There are, I'm sure, a lot of very interesting kind of species-specific genes and gene modifications, but in terms of a near-term uh, path to commercial translatability, it's a lot harder. So we, we focus really on highly conserved genes and pathways. So once we have that, then we start to test the hypothesis, right? We start to knock down or overexpress those genes in human cells in the lab. Um, we've done that now in multiple different disease areas. So kind of acute cardiac protection, which we started out talking about more cardiac fibrosis, which relates more closely to heart failure, more chronic heart disease. We've done some work modeling kind of changes in fat cells and liver cells in the partnership that we have with Novo Nordisk. And we could talk a little bit more about how we partner with pharma. Uh, and then modeling more complex disease ideologies like GI disease. So we can model barrier function and immune cell migration with these kind of bilayer models of human intestinal cells. So as the diseases get a little bit more complex, the models also get a little bit more complex. We try to be as faithful as we can in terms of modeling human disease in vitro before we go to animal studies. And so that's, it's, it's really a large, we're almost 50-50 in terms of data acquisition, data integration and computational power, and then developing and validating new model systems in our own labs uh, before we start to work with CROs and outside partners. Wow. Okay. That's fascinating. I, I was just thinking, you keep touching on uh, my questions before I get to them. So yeah, can, can you talk about, so so I, I'm just going to divert for one moment because you brought sure. up the relationship with pharma. And I also noticed yeah. you know, we all, you know, on your website, it's well-documented that you guys have a partnership with NIH as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We've gotten so NIH funding for a couple of different programs. That's right. That's so, so, you know, one of my, one of the things that I do is I talk to longevity biotechs and biotechs all day long. And a lot of people are looking for partnerships and, and you know, funding in that kind of route or realm. Um, so can you kind of talk about how you, how, th how that came about? Because I know that's something a lot of people listening would be interested in. So how, how did, how did these, how did these, uh, how did these relationships form? How, how, how did, how did this come about? Yeah, it's been a, it's been an educational process. Um, learning how to work through the sometimes multiple layers of bureaucracy that exist within big pharma to figure out who are the people you really need to talk to. I would say, you know, building a good personal relationship with the right scientific team is mission critical. You have to find a scientific team within pharma that has a question that you are uniquely posed to answer. 
So for Novo Nordisk specifically, we interacted with them in early 2019. So very early in Fauna's inception, one of our SAB members, Tom Hughes, knew the, the previous head of obesity at Novo Nordisk through another collaboration that they were both a part of, and so made a personal introduction. And then they were they had been interested in hibernation as a model for modulating metabolic rate for a long time and had no idea how to get into that science because the biology is very complicated and you need to have access to the right data and you need to know what to do with it. So they had been interested in that for a while, primarily because for their patients who have lost a significant amount of weight on drugs like semaglutide, so Wigovi and Ozempic, a lot of times those patients will then decrease overall metabolic rate. And so they may be more likely to put weight back on. It's called the biggest loser syndrome. They also can have decreases in lean muscle mass. And that's you know obviously been published in the clinical studies. And so looking at ways to really counteract some of those effects and also looking at ways to just overall, how do you increase energy expenditure in ways that you can't always easily model in humans? There's only so many different ways humans can increase their basal metabolic rate. We tried to compare some of the ground squirrel data to studies in humans that had taken a bunch of caffeine or had done exercise. And, you know, these animals can increase their metabolic rate 235 fold an hour. So it's hard to match that on the human side, but it's all using highly conserved, you know, genes that humans have. And so we started out from a scientific perspective and mapping uh, our expertise in the clinical samples that we had, two questions that they really needed answers to. And where we've gotten traction with other big pharma are those that are tackling these really large and more complex disease areas where they have access to all the human data that they really want. A lot of that is becoming highly commoditized. They have access to all the mouse and rat studies that they want to run. They're not resource limited in that capacity, but there's only really so many different ways you can analyze essentially the same data and expect to get different answers. And so they start to run out of new targets and new pathways by analyzing the same data in the same way. And so that's when they start to look at how can we actually think about this problem differently? Uh, and that's where Fauna comes in with really unique data sets that we are the only ones in the world that uh, have access to them and can analyze them in ways that other people can't and get the right kinds of answers out of them. So that's where trying to figure out, I think the nuance here has been figuring out what is the right level of novelty for a pharma partner. We initially were looking at really novel genes that were maybe poorly characterized that were really interesting, at least biologically. That's a much harder lift for pharma to kind of wrap their heads around. And so we've had to learn over time that what we're looking for oftentimes are genes that are well-known and well-described, but maybe have been looked at only in a certain disease context. And we're providing evidence for it in a new disease context where people haven't thought about it before, but they have comfort around those genes as real, really druggable targets. And that's that's what's underlying our lead program right now. And pulmonary fibrosis is a well-known druggable target, but for a completely different indication. And we've generated evidence for it in a new disease area. And that's something that, that pharma is really quite happy about. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I think people try to go to, actually skipped bio this year because actually I have enough in the partner partnering pipeline at the moment, but haven't gone to bio and JP Morgan, you know, on the partnering side, those high level kind of BD interactions are hard to convert into meaningful deals. It's really much more about finding an internal scientific champion within a therapeutic area who really wants what you have. And if you have that, then the BD people will follow. So gotcha. start with the science. You know, that, that is definitely the answer that I was looking for. That is perfect. So how did the NIH funding come about? You, was that at the very beginning of Fauna or when, when, when did you partner with NIH? And yeah, we've been getting some non-dilutive funding in for Fauna programs yeah, since early days. So we had funding from 
It was the Office of Research and Infrastructure Programs. So this is a group at NIH that funds new model systems, which is very appropriate for what we were doing. So they funded some of the work that we did to set up the 39 ground squirrel data and set up the first version of the platform and start to test some of the hits that came out of that. We also had funding actually just wrapped up. Linda's writing to close out on it right now. NHGRI, that was funding how we link the data from the ground squirrel to the human disease genomics and prioritize hits. So again, more funding for the platform itself. And then we are in the process of putting in some grant applications to fund specific asset programs. So we are putting in a phase two SBIR for the lead program as well, just to have dedicated program funding for actual assets that come through. And that's typically when we've had a really positive interaction with a program officer who's excited about the data that we're generating and thinks it's a good fit for the programs. Writing grants is, is a, it ha- you have to have a very careful cost-benefit analysis once you get to a certain stage because it is not a significant amount of effort to put in for grants. And so we're at a stage now where those grants have to be multiple millions of dollars to be worth our time. And we, you know, almost never put in grants that are worth, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars. It's just not worth our bandwidth to do it. That wasn't the case when we first started uh, four year, four or five years ago, right? So, but yeah, I'm happy to chat with anybody who's interested more about grant strategy because we certainly thought a lot about it. Sure, sure. Well, that kind of takes me to my next question, actually. So you guys started in 2018, right? Yeah. And you're not at a point now, you but you were at a point where hundreds, hundreds of thousands of dollars yeah. of grants made a difference. Made a big difference. Now they don't. Now they don't. So clearly yeah. things are on the up. So yeah. can you kind of take us through the journey? Of, of fauna and then what kind of what, what do you what do you see in the next five years what's what what are the milestones you're trying to hit when when do you think you know your first drug will be commercialized or, or available what's the general sense of timeline for for you guys yeah no it's been an interesting ride for sure we started out it was really about proving out that this strategy was valid right we were the first company to try to take natural disease resistance and turn it into a pharmaceutical pipeline using somewhat unique organisms. There is another company now that is doing work that is similar called Paratus Biosciences. You may have seen the announcement on that. They're working with bat data, looking at resistance to infectious disease and immune modulation, but a very similar strategy, but working with bat data. But as far as I know, we're the only two. They're doing it. So it's pretty novel. And our first investors, actually most of our investors in Fauna really have been those that are very focused on deep tech emerging technology really saw the promise of new genomics data and a new way to mine it in a really creative way as a way to really start to move the needle on human health. And so really it was first step, build the platform, prove out the platform and really a small disease subset. So we looked first at acute heart protection uh, because that was a a trait that had been really well mapped um, in the hibernation models. And then it was showing that this was not a a lucky one-off, right? That we could do this again, repeatedly multiple disease areas, um, as well as progress this initial pharma partnership with Novo Nordisk and show that that was progressing. And so all of that has gone quite well. So we brought in additional VC funding right at the end of 2021 that helped us expand the company portfolio in terms of adding computational headcount, adding R&D headcount, and broadening into those disease areas that I mentioned. And then we've since then brought in some additional funding as well. But yeah, it's been just kind of being mindful about hitting important programmatic milestones, validating the science uh, as efficiently as possible. We ran a team of 
five and then six for two and a half years, right? We did a lot of work with that. We're, right now we're only at 17. So it's still a pretty lean group for the amount of work that we've done. And we're at a point now where we're anticipating that our first drug would be into the clinic in the early part of 2025. So our lead program 1003, which is really exciting that we're kind of that close to having something that would go into humans. Uh, and then, you know, over the next five years, it's really building out the the internal pipeline, um, but then also expanding on the partnerships. So we have several additional partnerships that are kind of waiting in the wings um, for us to have a little bit of additional bandwidth to work on those. And I think the the benefit of having those partnerships is that it helps to de-risk any one thing that Fauna is working on. It provides upfront, you know, non-dilutive funding for work that we do, and also just really provides a lot of scientific validation that you know, particularly like, for example, you know, working with obesity on a company like Novo Nordisk, where that is really their core therapy area, you know, provides a lot of validation when they pick a company like Fauna to do uh, really core discovery work. And so doing that across a couple of additional complex disease areas where we don't want to develop assets internally, because frankly, they're really expensive to develop, like at heart failure and obesity, allows us to recognize some of the upside of doing the work in those areas, but with a little bit less of the risk involved. So 2025, huh? Potentially, yeah. Knock on wood. Well, I remember when 2025 was like 15 years away. That's when I was like, I know. Remember, I played (laughs) played a video game and it was set in 2025, and I was like, oh, wow. The future. Here we are. Here we are. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's 18 months ish. That's that's, that's awesome. So I want to I want to take a step back and discuss how you met your CSO, Katie. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, so you, you left Stanford and started Fauna right away, right? Basically. Yes, yes. So how did you meet Katie and what, what was, what was the, how did you meet Katie? Number one, number two, how did you make that leap from academia to industry? Because I see a lot of people who want to do the same thing, but are held back for some reason, or you don't see a path to viability. There's something holding them back. What, what, what yeah. allowed you to make that jump? Was it, was it meeting your CSO or was it? you know, some, some, something someone said to you, how how did you do it? Yeah. And I think the picture is not really complete without our CTO, Linda Goodman as well. So I think, and that's important because all three of us were in the same postdoc in Carlos Bustamante's lab at Stanford. And it was really all three of us had different parts of what you needed to build this company. So I came with more of my clinical translational set of experiences, having worked in the clinic, albeit in animals and understanding you know, what it kind of takes to make a good pharmaceutical product, at least, you know, from the animal side, but that more disease focused translational work. And then Katie, obviously, with her background in hibernation biology and having access to these really unique samples that nobody else in the world had that we could bring in as as starting IP at Fauna. And then Linda had come from a background in human genetics, had become very frustrated with how hard it is to find the right types of targets by just looking at human data alone. At the end of the day, we're all a little bit too similar and had taken the step of really moving with her postdoc into comparative genomics. So taking a step back and saying, okay, if we look at human genome, both through this lens of 100 million years of evolution, let's let evolution tell us what's really important. And those are oftentimes genes that haven't changed over time. Turns out that they're actually doing something important. So she had started work with what then was the 29 Mammals Project, which is now Zoonomia because it's too big and keeps growing. They stopped numbering the animals now. But there was a big issue of science, a whole issue of science dedicated to Zoonomia at the end of April that really highlights how important this 
you know, evolutionary scope is uh, to understanding what's really important in the human genome. And so with Linda's expertise, she came in and was able to integrate all the data and build the first version of the Fauna platform and really critically start to integrate all the data we were getting from Katie's work in the 139 ground squirrel, integrate it with the human disease genetics and start to be able to rank and order the targets and also be able to find the small molecules that actually are driving our pipeline today. So it was it was realizing that between the three of us, we had this really unique set of skills and it felt like it was very much a three musketeers type of situation, right? It didn't really work without all of us. I'm probably the least important, but I like to help bring groups together to do really ambitious things. That's what I like to do. And we realized too, that if we didn't do it, probably nobody else would, mostly because other people don't know that these data are out there and they also don't know what to do with these data, even if they really had them. So we were, you know, we met Laura Deming uh, at Stanford. Um, she was there giving a seminar to the the bioinformatics program there. And I started chatting with her about some of the weird organisms that I had worked with over the years, some of which are interesting models for longevity as well. And she, you know, essentially asked if, if we were thinking about starting a company, which we had started to think about it. And she was looking to bring companies into their first age one accelerator. So we went from thinking about a company to having sort of three weeks to start a company and all leave our postdocs in a very acute period of time. So we didn't have a lot of time to think about it, which is probably a good thing in hindsight. But then also we realized that if we didn't give it a shot, we would probably regret it for the rest of our lives. <laughs> so we decided to give it a shot. And so far it's it's worked out so far. So 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 the support of Linda and Katie were instrumental, you'll say. Oh, for sure. I don't think either any of the one of us would have started this company on our own, right? We're still like very good friends and still support each other in a number of different ways. And so I think that founder relationship is super critical. I I kudos to folks like Celine who are sole founders. I don't think I'm the type of person that would do that, but I think having folks who you respect scientifically and you respect personally to build a company with is is really, you know, irreplaceable. I agree with you. Yeah, part of me, you know, as the main founder of A4LI is is jealous right. that you have this like team with you, you know, it's like a yep. quad. So yeah, no, that definitely makes it easier to take that leap, right? For sure. Yep. Um, three weeks though, that's not a lot of time. What, what, I mean, okay, to be fair, so Linda and I had been, noodling on different ways to build companies in the comparative genomic space, right? But it's almost, it's too many, it's like a multivariable equation, right? There's too many sort of places to start. And so if you could start with any species in the world, where the hell do you start? And so Katie was like kindly listening to us iterating on some of these company ideas. And she was kind of doing her own academic job search and then realized that she was going to be really frustrated seeing that the majority of her work was going to be grants and publications where you end those papers and grants with saying, well, and someday somebody will translate this into a new therapy for X and realizing that a lot of times that doesn't actually get picked up. And so she said, look, if you guys are thinking about starting a company, I would be down to join you guys. And then we had like, okay, now we have a species and we have a biobank and we have really deep expertise in this one place that we can prove out the process and then start to build out from there. But it was really, you know, when she kind of came in with us that it helped to snap everything into focus. But yeah, we had three weeks. I mean, Linda and I had an interesting, because Katie got to keep doing a lot of work she was doing. Linda and I were doing a bunch of other stuff during our postdoc. And so I remember sitting on the floor of my living room with like a list of collaborators that I had built during my postdoc, like doing a bunch of breakup emails. 
because <laughs> I was like, hey guys, I'm so sorry. I'm going to start this company. And I'm going to have to wrap down this in this project. I just did it all in one like Saturday afternoon. I wrote a bunch of breakup emails to a bunch of academic collaborators, but you know, it was worth it. <laughs> Uh, that's a funny way of putting it. Hopefully they forgive me. I had to back out of a lot of stuff. That was very cool work that I was doing, but I, yeah. I like what I'm doing now. Yeah. Are there any salty X's in the academic industry for you or no? No? Good. No, good terms with everybody. Yeah. <laughs> good. I'm just joking. Well, so, you know, I, I do want to talk a little bit more about your background in uh, cancer biology. Sure. Not from the scientific uh, perspective, but from more of the advocacy and awareness perspective. And so, well, well, so the first thing I want to ask you before we get into that actually is, so there are a lot of these sort of um, nonprofits, organizations focused on bringing new talent into the longevity field, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so if you were speaking to a cancer biology student as someone who made that leap, what would you say to calm their fears and encourage them to kind of pursue this path? I think what people get nervous about in leaving academia is they worry that they won't be able to do good science. And I think what we have found is that you have to do potentially even better science. Maybe that sounds a little bit heretical, but I don't care if you produce a pretty image for a figure for a paper. I care that the science is real and repeatable and it works every time. Because if I'm going to build a therapeutic program on the back of your science, it has to work. And so, you know, again, I don't really care if you produce these whatever figures for the paper one time. So I think for us, it's been frustrating as with so many people, right? Trying to replicate uh, certain academic findings. You find some of it replicates and some of it doesn't. We just, we have to value higher, higher degree of science. And so I think once people realize that, assuming you work for the right company, that science is a priority, then you get to do really high quality science. And then you get to see the impact of that high quality science, right? You actually start to build drugs that are going to have an impact and hopefully save the lives of potentially millions of people. And so there's a bigger outcome to that work. And I I had, I joked with him later about this, but one of my cancer biology PhD uh, cohort guys, one of the senior folks in my cancer biology PhD, he kind of liked to, I don't know, get under people's skin. And so he got in my face one time and he was like, so like, what's more important, basic research or translational research? And I was like, dude, you need both. Like, what the hell kind of question is that? Like, it's not, it's not a question. You need both. You need basic academic research that is, you know, underlo- unlying, unlocking new mechanisms of disease, but you don't know exactly how you're going to use it. But then if it's ever going to actually help humanity, you have to translate it. And that work has to be more focused. And oftentimes, those are just different mindsets of how to do that work both of which are equally important. And he, like I said, he and I have joked about that since. He's, he's at a biotech now. <laughs> so he's doing more translational work, I guess, than he was before. So I think, like I said, the people that we brought in from academia, I think their nervousness is, like I said, will I still be able to do interesting, high-quality science? And the answer is yes, particularly if you're with an early-stage biotech. I think if you're in a large pharma and you're, say, doing assay optimization, that probably gets a little bit monotonous. But I think if you're in an early enough stage biotech where you're building new drug programs and you're building new model systems and you're, you know, working out details on programs, I think it's, you know, our folks have found that to be really intellectually challenging and you get to run your own programs, you get to work with a team and the overall individual contribution means a little bit less, right? That just the outcome matters. So we don't care who's second to last author on second paper. No one, no one cares. (laughs) So it's only the outcome that matters. 
So I think that's refreshing for people that they don't have to then worry about if they're second or third or second co-first author on some publication. They just, that the work matters. Right. Well, the, you know, the business aspect of a startup and a biotech probably, you know, makes people, you know, I mean, it's a business, right? You know, it's more product and and producing something as a team than getting individual recognition for your next grant or whatever it may be. So, yeah, no, I mean, it's interesting hearing the leap because I feel like a lot of biotech people are like disgruntled or bored academics these days. You know, it's like, I mean, look, I only went to, I only went undergrad, you know, I, I didn't enjoy school myself. So yeah. I understand it from the people's perspective to make that jump for sure. And so let me ask also the, the, you were in the middle of that translational and basic research matter the most. Your friend was on the side that basic research matters more. I have to go back and ask him what side he was on at the time. Probably. Yeah. But instead now he's in a biotech. So I guess he's probably switched out. But yeah. <laughs> there switched awesome. Well, that's fascinating. I, so I did want to ask a, a, about this general longevity movement though, right? Sure. The whole longevity, increasing healthy life expectancy movement, health span, whatever we want to call it. Yep. You know, it's an advocacy effort that is powerful in its message. I believe, I, I believe the potential to, when the hearts of the public is there, but we're, I feel like we're just not doing it, right? Yeah. Like this industry is, is, is there's something missing and cancer advocacy. I mean, the American Cancer Society is, you know, one of, if not the biggest health advocacy organizations out there, out there. Um, and it feels like they are mainstream and, you know, everyday people support their missions. And so, I try to look at what they do in terms of, you know, rallying the public to a cause as as kind of a a model for what I'm trying to do. And so as someone in cancer biology, I don't know if you had any sort of interaction with, you know, these kind of health advocacy groups, but what do you think is kind of the missing link for this longevity mission that some, someone may, you know, a, a group like the American Cancer Society or the Alzheimer's Association or some other kind of political effort, what, what's the missing link you think that the, industry is missing. Yeah, I think we do live in a little bit of, I don't know, I'm not actually sure where you live. I think you're closer to DC, but I'm in California. Uh, So I think we do live in a little bit of a bubble out here where we think that like everybody just, you know, should want, wants to live longer. And I think it's harder to link. I think it's, I think it's just like, like with American Cancer Society and also you have to link it to a direct impact for people, right? Making it feel more concrete. I think there is a little bit of a, What's the even word I'm looking for? Issue with, oh my God, the word has escaped me. Like an image problem with longevity uh, field, right? Where it's seen as a lot of rich people who just want to live forever, like frankly. And so I think there's a lack of translation into what advantages in longevity science have for everybody on the planet, not just people who you know maybe want to live forever. Um, but for people who want to enjoy healthier lives for maybe another decade, right? I mean, that's certainly doable. And I think a lot of the work that could be done is linking some of the mechanisms that the more successful biotechs are now working on that have drugs that are in the clinic. I mean, one concrete example, I'll, I'll put a shout out to BioAge because I admire the work that they're doing, is some of the data that they're producing on on sarcopenia, right? On some of the and it was funny, my mom had her foot in a cast for some foot surgery for about three weeks. And she was sending me pictures of her leg muscles that had like completely atrophied over a couple of weeks. And I was like, man, should be a drug for that. <laughs> Turns out that people are working on it, right? So I think it's I think it's drawing the links to 
these sort of what sound like maybe even kind of science fiction type ideas and really saying, you know what, all this really optimizing the body's ability to heal and repair itself. And that's a lot of what we work on are ways that evolution has chosen to heal and repair tissues and various organ systems and various species. And then figuring out what's the best corollary for that on the human disease side, how can we help our bodies heal and repair themselves more efficiently? And if we can do that, then we can have, you know, then again, then the decade or longer of healthy lifespan to spend with our grandkids and our family, right? So the linking it, and that's part of the policy question you and I've talked about before, is how do you link those kind of biological advances in longevity science per se to concrete diseases where you can start to test those hypotheses? And many different companies are doing that in many different ways. You know, Cambrian's taking really a portfolio approach to that problem, really building companies that tackle very different aspects of longevity. So I think every company is, is trying to figure that. Loyal is obviously trying to prove out the overall hypothesis, but in a different species first. So everybody's sort of trying to figure that out. But I think where longevity science will get gains is by taking it away from this kind of Silicon Valley air that it sort of has around it right now and making it applicable to the everyday person, right? Like I was just back visiting my family in Kentucky and, you know, spending time in the border between Kentucky and Tennessee. And, you know, not a lot has changed there in the last 20 years. It's pretty like static, down home, great people, average Americans, right? And it's like, you need to make that science relevant to the folks who are living out their lives all throughout the country and not in these particular kind of high-tech science bubbles. And I think then you'll start to get more adoption of, but you have to draw it to concrete outcomes that really affect people's lives. Right. Well, you know, for, for cancer advocacy, just the thing that pops into my head is that uh, the, the Jimmy Fund or the, the oh yeah. they had the poster child, I guess his name was Jimmy, but you know, that, that was kind of like the beginning of their advocacy efforts. And the thing about longevity and like aging and the kind of things that this, you know, a field is pushing for is seeing a child in a bed with cancer is, you know, people, everybody knows what that is, right? Mm-hmm. But aging is still kind of, you know, myst, mystified. And there's no real way to like show a picture of an older person and, you know, garner that sympathy, right? Right. Someone younger with, you know, this specific disease will get. So, you know, and then also, yeah, I mean, something I'm happy about, I'm, I'll just talk for a sec, but the, the something I'm really happy about is our caucus is not just Silicon Valley. We only have one yeah. Silicon Valley uh, rep there, Anna Eshoo, yeah. but the rest is New York, you know, the, uh, you know, north of Tampa, right? You know, and those kind yeah. of um, less, I mean, Tampa itself is not a longevity city, but like, you know, outside of these cities, it's, you know, th- these are the people that you know, we want to reach, right? These are the people that are are yeah. going to, uh, you know, really also make or break this industry, right? We're not, I don't think the industry is creating drugs for 1% of the population. No. Right? It's not, that's, that's yeah. not, there's no way to profit there. So yeah, um, yeah no, I, I think you're definitely right. And, you know, I also believe that, you know, as more success comes in this industry with companies and drugs, you know, actually reaching the clinic and beyond, our ability as advocates will you know, our ability to advocate will grow and 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 be improved, right? Just because we actually have, you know, a drug or a therapeutic or a device or whatever it may be to say, hey, this is what we're talking about. This is what we should be yep. pushing, right? So I definitely agree with you for sure. Let me let me ask you this now. We, we're almost running a little low on time here, so I, I, I will we'll, I'll, I'll ask my last question, and we'll see how long it goes. Because this is a very in-depth question that, that okay. 
you could either give me a two sentence response or a two hour response, I believe. So okay. in Fauna's efforts to um, commercialize, develop and commercialize these drugs, what is your interaction with FDA, with government? I know you have the NIH partnership, but what is the interaction specifically with the FDA? And is there a way that you could see uh, a path to optimizing the communication line between companies and the FDA? How, how do you see that relationship improving? How can we improve the relationship between biotechs and like Fauna and the FDA? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So I think from Fauna's perspective, right, we're building pipeline therapies for specific disease indications. And so we're taking guidance, you know, from the FDA uh, and following similar paths for drugs that have been approved for those indications. So we're not trying to do a lot of innovation in terms of FDA interactions. It's not kind of really where we're op operating. So, you know, we're building diverse pipeline assets across multiple disease areas. I mentioned the first one is in pulmonary disease. And so we're, again, we're sort of following the approval path that's been laid out for other drugs that have approved for either pulmonary fibrosis or pulmonary hypertension. I mean, at least there are drugs that have been approved in those areas that we can sort of follow that regulatory path. I think we were looking before at some disease indications where there hadn't really been any good drugs approved. And we were trying to figure out what that path would look like. And that I think becomes a lot more difficult. So I wouldn't say that I've got a wealth of experience in terms of trying to think about how to improve interactions with the FDA. You know, I think using the guidance that is there, I think talking to the FDA when you have the right kinds of data in hand, you can get meaningful feedback and making sure that you're designing studies that, you know, answer the questions that they're obviously going to have are always helpful. But yeah, I don't know that we're necessarily trying to innovate on that particular part of the pipeline uh, as opposed to more of the early stage. Yeah. Sure. Well, you know, it's interesting because. A lot of people want to see like a total reimagination of the FDA, right? Mm -hmm. And I find that a lot of the most successful companies in the space are operating within the system that they're given, right? And yeah. like you said, that has a you know long track record of getting approval. And so while it's great to kind of push for some big change or, you know, some bigger focus, at least on, you know, different types of drugs that may not fit into the traditional type of pipeline, you know, or, or focus, it, it, there is something to be said about playing ball, right? Within the yeah. what's given to you. And so my, my last question on this is, do you plan on, so, so, so do Fauna's, will Fauna's drugs be sort of in this aging longevity scope in that they can be like a preventative, they could be sort of you know, used as a way to slow metabolism or, or, or a mechanism of aging? Like, is this going to be something that is, in your mind, targeting a disease specifically, th like th through its completion? Or is this something that can maybe be taken off label or, you know, as sort of a preventative, like in, you know, a typical longevity companies hope, I guess. So, so yeah, what, what do you see? Yeah, I think that I think it a little bit remains to be seen. I think where we're seeing is that the pathways that we're modulating are linked very closely to aging related pathways. And so while we're studying these drugs right now, in a disease specific format, we've talked internally about do we want to test these in, you know, some more traditional model organism models of disease. And that's something that we've talked about doing. The drugs that we're designing are very safe and instead in some cases are drugged for other disease indications. And so, yeah, potentially there could be an advantage uh, to giving some of these drugs uh, preventatively. But I think, like I said, we'd have to probably generate a lot more data to say that. 
But like I said, what we do right now is just try to carefully characterize what are the mechanisms that we're modulating and we're seeing that you know, we're able to affect potentially multiple different hallmarks of aging and age-related diseases for looking at different aspects of the biology of the species that we work with. And so that's really exciting to be able to build out programs that address, you know, potentially multiple different hallmarks of aging. And then figuring out, can you then apply that across potentially multiple diseases really as a first point to start? And then can you then bridge into, yes, maybe other types of either preventative disease or slowing progression of disease more chronically? Gotcha. So, so basically, you're you're going to take you where the science takes you, where you're going to go where the science takes. It's always science first at Fauna. Yes, we'll go where the science leads us. That's right. Cool. All right. Well, Ashley, we're about to be at time here. So, what I would like to do, what I would like to end each podcast is, I like our guests to say something inspirational, give give our audience uh, some hopeful message that gets them out of bed tomorrow and gives them something to look forward to. So, you know, can you give an optimistic outlook for? The future, what do you see in terms of health and medicine? What makes you hopeful? I think the advantages in technology and the ability to advance biology in a much more rapid state are more advanced now than they ever have been in the past. And so just being able to use new data sets rapidly, integrate new data rapidly, it just, just means that we're going to get more and more innovation at a rapid, more rapid, rapid pace. And so I'm really excited about the time in biotech right now. I feel like there's so many different ways to build interesting and unique uh, biotechnology, either platforms or companies or disease strategies. I am you know, super hopeful for the future in terms of being able to really meaningfully impact human health. And I just think it's a great time to be building building biotech. For sure. Absolutely. You know, it's, you know, it's been tough for the biotech industry these last few years, but what's yep. this it's always uh, darkest before the dawn, right? I, I, I do believe in my heart that biotech, specifically longevity biotech and the types of advanced uh, things we're talking about are going to take center stage, not just in the mind of investors, but, you know, in the mind of the public. So I share your optimism and it's it's up to people like us and not just us, but everybody to push for this kind of future that we're that we're talking about. So I'm with you. Let's 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 make it happen. I agree. Uh, all right. Ashley, I think we're at time here. So I just want to say thank you for joining us today on the HBAN podcast. We'll have to bring you on again sometime in the future to give us updates. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, please. And uh, if there's anything else you'd like to say to our audience before we sign off, I'm going to give you the, the floor is yours. No, just excited about the future. So I didn't see what it brings. Yeah. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And we will be back in two weeks with another installation of the HBAN podcast. Live long and prosper. Thank you, Ashley, for making the time to join us today. And for those of you listening at home, I hope you found this conversation as enlightening and informative as I did. If you have anyone you would like to see make an appearance on our podcast, you can send your suggestions to us at info at a4li.org. HBAN will return in a couple of weeks, but until then, let's live long and prosper.